Blog Talk Radio. Funky Writer Show, all about the funk of writing. I'm your host and navigator, Robert Batista, author of the seminal novel, Brooklyn Story, and powerful novella, Carmela's Dream. The Funky Writer Show has been called the most informative, eclectic outlet for all wordsmiths and little Roddy, now celebrating seven years of dynamic Writer's Talk Radio. Why is the Funky Writer Show so terrific? Because I'm a writer, just like my guests, and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. Today's exciting bio, the guest's bio says in part, after growing up training standard bred racehorses, he went to work at a nuclear plant before helping to build the Internet. He moves between fantasy, young adult, and science fiction. He is a prolific author. His name is Brian Rathbone. Welcome, Brian Rathbone, to the Funky Writers Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, uh, we made it, and um, I tell you, I've been quickly going over a lot of uh, what you do online, and uh, you are an extremely prolific author and uh, so much more. Um, Welcome, Brian, and um, why don't we just start off by uh, you explaining um, why you feel that uh, this show can help you in what you'd like to do. This is your platform, Brian. What would you like to discuss? Well, one of the most uh, common things that um, readers and other writers ask me is, you know, how did you get to where you are today? And uh, it's something I like to share, uh, and I think this is a great opportunity to maybe talk about that. Uh, Any of the folks who are out there who are just interested in in what the writing process is for folks and um, how the the publishing landscape has changed, uh, or for folks out there who are aspiring writers or you know, um, already in the writing landscape and and looking for some new information, uh, I I think we have a lot to talk about. So before we even get into talking about writing, if you can humor me, please, and just talk about the bio that I just read. You went to work at a nuclear plant before helping build the Internet after you grew up training standard-bred racehorses. (laughs) Please elaborate a little more on that. Don't leave us hanging. 
Okay, I can do that. Uh, I was very fortunate as as a kid growing up on a working horse farm with four generations of my family training standard bred racehorses, um, working you know in the barn, on the racetrack, in the fields, on the tractors, and I just uh, I loved it. Although when I was eighteen, I guess I didn't realize how much I loved it. You, if you do something your whole life, you don't realize how much. Uh, it means to you until you stop doing it. And so I had decided that I didn't want to work at the racetrack. I didn't want to work on horses. I didn't want to, um, you know, work outside for a living and do those sorts of things. So I said, I'm going to go, you know, find a way into corporate America. Um, one little pit stop along the way was the fact that I got a summer job working at a nuclear plant. I worked in the procurement and materials control warehouse, and I was a professional mop pusher. Uh, they decided that job was a little too tough for me and, and got me a protein-powered street sweeper that I used to drive through the warehouse. And I, I got to see a lot of interesting things there, and it was a neat experience. But after that was when I ended up discovering computers in the early 90s. Uh, I was actually just a computer professional at the time that the Internet was really starting to become pervasive. So I got the experience of switching a lot of companies from their old computer systems that were not Internet compatible, putting them on the Internet. Uh, I ended up working for some NASCAR teams. Uh, I worked for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated and Joe Gibbs Racing as a consultant doing computer work and eventually ended up as the vice president of research and development for uh, .com uh, right before the .com crash, which was a little bit unfortunate. But it was a wonderful experience. And... uh, My last job in the technology field, I was the senior telecommunications specialist for the North Carolina Department of Commerce Broadband Edition. That was always a mouthful. Uh, Wow, that is a mouthful. Yeah, that was (laughs) that title always got me. Uh, But a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was able to go full time writing. Um, That's something I've been passionate about, and I've wanted to do since I was a teenager. And it's a dream come true to get to do it. Okay, and 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 that's that leads me to my next question. Okay, so and speaking of the the beginning of the net, internet, I remember when we first got the internet on my company, we were using uh, a service called Netscape, and I remember Netscape was the internet, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Internet Explorer by Microsoft started building and building and. Then they just took over, and Netscape just went by the wayside. But I do remember Netscape. <laughs> well, I think Netscape, if it's just it's still there. Uh, the name has changed. It's now uh, it was open sourced years ago as the Mozilla um, Foundation and Firefox. Okay. Uh, the web browser Firefox is actually based off of and uh, largely off the old Netscape code. Although they probably distance themselves from that now. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I use Firefox a lot, so that that's good to know. So, okay, so you're trudging along. You're you're in you're into computers. You're into the internet. But deep down inside of you, there is a writer that's screaming to get out. And you said about the past year, you you've been writing basically full time. But what about previous to that? I'm sure you started writing incrementally and doing everything incrementally while, of course, you had your your day job. How did you begin to write, and what was the first early writings that you did? Well, that's a great question because it's a long journey. 
uh, I knew from the time I was a teenager that I wanted to write fantasy fiction. I love fantasy fiction. That's what I love to read. It's what a lot of my friends love to read. Uh, and I just always knew I had a story I wanted to tell. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I met my wife over 20 years ago on our first date, I told her I was going to write books. And it was just one of those things that it's nice now to have that come true. Uh, for years when I, was a pub, uh, when I was a programmer, I would work until late at night writing code. And then I would go to bed, and my mind would write and debug code all night in my sleep. And it was exhausting. Sometimes I'd wake up and fix the bugs in the middle of the night, which is a little crazy. But most of the time, it really wasn't all that productive. So I started thinking about the stories that I wanted to someday write. So for almost 15 years, every night when I went to bed, I would think about those storylines. And when I finally got the chance to start writing in 2005, I had most of the story in my head for, for a 9 to 12 book series, and I just had to figure out how to get it out of my head and into a usable format, and that was kind of an early part of my writing experience. But Call of the Herald, the first book in my fantasy series, is the first thing I ever wrote. And it's got some weaknesses. It's got some flaws. Most folks end up seeing it for its charm, uh, and as they read through my series, they almost go as a, on a journey with me as a writer because I really was not trained or, or in any way. I didn't go to school to become a writer or any of those things. So you can see a difference as I've progressed through the series and gotten feedback from readers and learned and, and I think gotten better as a writer. That's always been my goal. Is I hope every book I write is better than the one I wrote before it. And I guess with that being the case, I look back at that first book every once in a while and I see all of its weaknesses, but that, that might just be a writer thing. <laughs> sure, sure. Even with my books, uh, I go back and reread them at times and say, wow, I could have changed this or I could have said this in another spot or this or that. But as you said, that's just a writer thing. But speaking about writing code and debugging code, I, I work on the other side of that. I'm the technical computer operator that has to run the programs that uh, you guys wrote and a lot of times they blew up and boy i got a lot to talk to you about that one day uh, but you know what they say brian they say a lot of mental institutions across the country are filled with pro computer programmers still trying to debug code <laughs> it is a fact that, that programmers had one of the highest highest rates of uh, mental illness <laughs> Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it might also is why it made you such a great prolific writer. But let's let's talk about fantasy fiction, which basically you said is you knew you wanted to write that uh, since uh, from the beginning. Um, what exactly is fantasy fiction? Uh, we all have ideas, but can you define it in a nutshell? And why did you choose that genre in the beginning? Well, to define what fantasy is, it is a lot of things to a lot of people, and it is right. a somewhat fluid definition. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the most lively debates I've ever been to was at the World Fantasy Convention in 2007. I got to sit in on a panel where George R.R. R. Martin, uh, Joe Haldeman, and Lee Modisett 
argued the differences between science fiction and fantasy, and, and it, it got pretty lively in that debate, I must say. So there's a lot of different um, definitions out there, you know. and I'll give you the key one. If you look at Star Wars, Star right. Wars has elements of science fiction. It has spaceships. It has lasers. It has future technology. It has things that are explained by science. But then there's the force. There's this mystical side of it. There's the magical side of it. There's the, um, you know, the Jedi, you know, have their powers. And that falls more in a fantasy type of setting. So I don't think that any particular work has to be fantasy or science fiction. But if it leans more heavily towards magic, towards the what if, uh, then it's probably going to be considered and marketable as fantasy. And if it leans more towards spaceships and lasers and time travel and those sorts of things, it's probably going to be more marketable as science fiction and fantasy, as you know, as science fiction. Uh, so for me, it really comes down to the reader's preferences. Um, I think Pern is another example where science fiction and fantasy mixed. Uh, Lee Modisett's, uh Magic of Recluse series is another that kind of dances that line between science fiction and fantasy. I love to go to another world. I love reading science fiction, but I lean towards that magic system. Uh, and that's just been something I fell in love with as a teenager. And that's kind of where I got the idea to start writing fantasy fiction myself. Got it. Got it. So, okay. So you got your first story and your first manuscript and you're ready to get it published. You're ready to get it out to the world. Um, talk about how seamless or non-seamless it was getting that into print, into publication, and what were some of the challenges, if any, that you had in getting that first book published? Did you go through an agent? Did you find uh, uh, one of the big publishers right away? Did you self-publish? How did you work that out? Well, I was definitely not ready. When I thought I was ready, I really wasn't. Um, but it's just part of the learning process. So I wanted to overdo it. I wanted to put myself in a position where I'd be irresistible to agents and publishers because my original goal was to get a traditional publishing deal. Rather than just write one book, I wrote three. I hired a professional editor who worked in the genre, loved fantasy, worked on some of my favorite series. Uh, Her name is Andrea Howe. Um, We put a lot of effort into those. And, you know, it's a pretty good financial investment as well. Uh, but it's absolutely one of the reasons that the series has endured uh, is the work that I did with Andrea. I learned a lot working with her, and she helped me a great deal of getting that manuscript into shape. With that said, when I queried agents in 2007, all I got were form rejection letters. And that's a pretty big hit to the ego. Uh, to anybody who writes a book or a series of books and thinks they're going to go out and get a deal and then realizes that, no, the agents really aren't excited to hear from them. And you can start to think, well, is it me? Is it my my writing? And what I started to do was look at it from a business standpoint. And I realized that it was a difficult time in publishing, still is. Uh, right. Folks need to make a living. And publishing is a business. And so if you look at it from a business, if you're a brand-new writer, and you have no audience, nobody knows who you are, nobody's ever read any of your books, 
it's a lot more difficult to get somebody to risk hundreds of thousands of dollars investing in getting your book ready for publishing and publishing it. Traditional print publishing is a very risky business. When those books right. get sent out to the bookstores, if people don't buy them, the bookstores send them back for returns and get their money back, and the publisher can lose their money. So that's what you don't want to happen. And I think that's what the agents saw then was, hey, you're a losing proposition, not because you're a bad writer, but because you don't have all of the components yet. So I took that to heart and said, okay, well, how can I build those components, uh, an author platform, an audience, um, having people wanting to read my next book. I think it's the most critical point of getting published is somebody wants to buy your book. Right. So I decided to self-publish. Now, this was in 2007. The world has changed a lot since then. But I actually paid for a traditional offset print run of 1,000 copies of my trilogy. It cost me almost $10,000 by the time it was said and done. And then I really had no way to distribute the books to bookstores. I thought I had done a smart thing, and I really hadn't. It was a $20 retail price book. I had $9 in costs. But it, well, actually, I had $7 in costs, but shipping could get in there and eat it up as well. But if you right. look like a, a retailer like Amazon, if I wanted to sell the books I printed on Amazon, I had to give Amazon a 55% discount. Right. Well, as soon as you do that, there's no money left to ship the book to Amazon. I'm upside down. <laughs> I've lost money selling a book. So that was a really big learning lesson for me. And this was before eBooks really became as popular as they are today. Right. But right. I did quickly turn from that paperback fiasco. I eventually sold enough books to make my money back. I wouldn't do it again. So I did learn about the eBook market as it was emerging. I was a technical guy. That's always helped me in this journey. And Moby Pocket was a big retailer of eBooks back in the day, and I started seeing some success there. And I got on the bestseller list in Epic Fantasy for a year and a half straight. And during the recession, there was a couple times that paid my mortgage. So that was really when I started to make the transition to say, well, okay, I've been doing this part-time, but now I'm actually starting to make a little money at it. And so I started on the second trilogy. At this point, I've got you know three trilogies out as of last year, and I was making enough money to pay my bills. Um, sometimes they're better than others. It's, it's, a, it's a royalty market, so some months you make great money and some months you don't, so it's a little bit difficult right. to balance. But I got to the point that in my career, I had the money to do the things I wanted to do, but I didn't have the time. And so I left that career. It was a time-limited job. It was a perfect opportunity for me to step away without doing any damage to anyone. And I went full-time writing, and now I find myself with the time to do what I need, but maybe not the excess financial resources that I want for some of the marketing. And I spend probably close to three to $4,000 to produce each book by the time I've paid for cover art, editing, layout, and audio. So I have an investment that I put into these books, and I need to earn that investment back. So that got me to the point that I'm doing well. Uh, I happened to go to a conference, uh, Balticon, one of my favorite conferences on the East Coast in uh, Baltimore, every day right. on Memorial Day. And I happened to be on a panel uh, with an extremely successful and well-known agent. 
and in discussing um, with him my journey through the panel and talking with him after the panel, he expressed an interest in my work. I told him I was going to go home and write a book just for traditional publication that I could give to an agent and that they could have for six months to a year and not have me harping on them, you know, I need to publish this because I need to make money. I need to write a book that I can hand to them and let them have. Uh, and that's the process where I am right now. I'm just about to finish uh, my latest book, um, which is codenamed Dragon Airways. And I'm going to be sending that off to uh, the agent early next year once I've got it fully edited and, and really as clean as I can possibly make it. And uh, I'm very much hoping that that will be my entry point into traditional publishing. I've had a couple different agencies approach me now, some smaller publishers, but I'm really going to go out and swing hard for the fences and try and get that big book deal with the big agent. And now I have readers who want to read my books. I have a proven sales track record. Uh, you know, I can show that I've so, uh, uh, sold over 300,000 books. And as much as writers love to think that the writing industry is all about their words, numbers are important. And from the business side of it, to be able to show that you've sold the books, uh, that you've got an outlet, a way to get to readers. Uh, Twitter is one of my major outlets, one of the ways that I connect with readers. I've got 130,000 folks following me on Twitter, and I, I have content that I provide on a regular basis that folks seem to like. And that's another piece of my author platform, uh, building a mailing list, having traffic to my website, um, and really the reviews and the, the downloads and the purchases of my existing books, not to mention podcasts. Um, I actually podcast my first three novels on patiobooks.com so folks can go out and listen to them for free. It, those get downloaded 30,000 episodes a month. You know, all those types of things are things I can go back to an agent now and say, this is why I think I'm a good business deal because I've got the readers. I've got content that I know they like, and now I think I'm ready to go out and sell enough books in the first six weeks from publication that the publisher won't pull it for being a failure. Brian, you said a mouthful, and it sounds like you have all your ducks in a row, and you're, you've, dotted, you've dotted every I, you've crossed every T, now you have to just... Wait and see what happens, but uh, you're, you're ready. You're ready. So, Brian, let's talk about the dawning of power, a young adult epic fun, uh, fantasy bundle, the world of Gosland bundle series, book one. Um, talk to me about that and, and, and why are you so excited about it? Well, that is the first trilogy in the series. Um, there are three trilogies out in the series. There will be one more. That's my goal for next year is to write the fourth and final trilogy in the primary story arc for the Goslin series. But my heart and soul really went into that first trilogy. And so for anybody who wants to check out my books, that's really a great place. Um, right. It's on sale right now. It actually is free at the moment. Uh, and you can actually get the audiobook version of it uh, for $1.99. So for anybody who'd like to check that out, just go to bit.ly slash audio epic. That's B-I-P dot L-Y slash audio epic, A-U-D-I-O-E-P-I-C, all lowercase, 
no spaces. And so really that's the intro into my world. And, and as a fan of epic fantasy, I always like to have an ending somewhere in there. Uh, I learned from having read Robert Jordan and uh, George R. R. Martin and some other authors who got well into epic series without really many satisfying endings along the way. And, and that was tough for me as a reader. So when I set out to write the Goslin series, I said, I'm going to write a series of trilogies where each third book will give what I hope is a satisfying ending. So folks right. can really pick up that first trilogy, read it, get to the end of book three, and if they're satisfied, they can walk walk away, and and they haven't been left hanging. But if they yeah, want to pick book up book four, each book stands alone, correct? Exactly. Correct. Exactly. Correct. They build upon each other, so it's best to read the first trilogy before the second trilogy. But each trilogy does stand alone. Right. Right. So uh, I see you've also written something called The Silliest Dragon with uh, a man <laughs> by the name of Matt Ostrom. So that looks like a kind of a departure, um, and you didn't even mention that. What's that about? Well, about a year ago, um, there were some things going on in the industry, and I'm just going to say some big retailers out there were really trying to tap the children's book market pretty hard especially right. in the digital space. And with talking with my cover artist, uh, we were just having some fun, and we thought, wouldn't it be neat to do a children's book in my series? And so we did one. And it was, I'm not going to say hugely successful, but it was well-received. You know, it got eight or nine reviews. I think maybe it had ten reviews, and it was a five-star book. So it was at, very, at the very least well-received by those who did check it out. And I was contacted by a retailer who said, hey, we saw your book. We like what you're doing. We want to go after this market. And we would love it if you could produce more of that. So I took that opportunity, and I called every illustrator and every writer I knew that was working in the children's book market. And we put our heads together, and we came up with a catalog of content. Uh, and that book, The Silliest Dragon, is one of my favorites. It's a, it's a bedtime story for kids. Um, it's definitely a light read. It is not epic fantasy <laughs> by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination. And in the end, I would say that, you know, um, as a business venture, it was not the most financially successful market. I, I need right. to look a bit more into print distribution uh, where bookstores can carry the print editions because those just tend to do better from what I'm seeing in the children's book market. But what it did do for me is solidify my relationship with a major retailer and give me an opportunity to do something to help them, and it has been beneficial for me in the long run. Sounds like a win-win situation. Uh, Brian, you write fantasy young adult, and, and sci-fi, uh, also children's books, and, you know, there are other genres that are popular, like romance fiction, paranormal, erotica, vampire werewolves. Those seem to be the, the, the highlight of, of the genres that, you know, every time you look on Facebook or, or YouTube or Twitter, Everybody is pushing these type of books because I guess, of course, they sell. And they also say most books are bought by women. I don't know if that's still true, but that was true uh, for a long, long time. So 
let's say I have the great American novel, and it's not in any of those genres, uh, but I still want to write it, and I still want to publish it. Uh, is, is this going to be a waste of my time? I don't think it would be a waste of your time, no. You do want to aim for some shelf that's popular in the bookstore. Mysteries, crime thrillers, those tend to be very popular as well. What I wouldn't recommend is doing something so experimental that you say, my book is so unique that there's no shelf in the bookstore it would fit on because then no bookstore is going to know where to put it <laughs> or how to market it. So right. as long as there's an existing market, you know, go on to Amazon as an example and look at the sales ranks of the top-rated books in that genre. That right there, comparatively, will give you an idea of is that genre selling or not. And as long as those sales ranks for the top-rated books are not 250,000, chances are there's a market there waiting to read your book. And that's it. It's all about niches. It's all about capturing that market. But so many markets are saturated. But so, okay, you want to write another vampire book. So what makes your vampire different from all the other thousands and thousands of vampire books out there? So it, it's, it's almost like a crapshoot sometimes, Brian. It is. And I hate to say it, but at the end of the day, a poorly written book can be a lot more popular than a well-written book if the poorly right. written book is better marketed. And a lot right. of it comes down to being a good marketer, and I never realized I was going to have to be as much of a marketer as I am. Well, Brian, I've never seen 30 minutes go so quickly. Uh, in wrapping it up, can you basically just – just tell us uh, anything else that you feel you want to discuss and our audience would like to know about what you're doing and what you would like to say. Well, it's been wonderful being here. Uh, for anybody who would like to communicate with me, uh, my website is brianrathbone.com, and I'm at brianrathbone on Twitter. I try to be accessible. I try to answer questions from folks when I can. Um, I've actually written a book on how I built my audience, and, and um, how I got the book sales that I have uh, that's called uh, How You Can Sell More Books. And you can go to bit.ly slash how Brian did it, all lowercase, no spaces. Uh, and uh, I would love to talk with folks. And uh, if you're in interested in checking out my books, go out to bit.ly slash audio epic and check it out. Oh, I know. I wanted to talk about one last thing, audio books. You mentioned yeah. before uh, something called patio books that you have one of your books on uh talk about i think you said uh producing an audio book is sort of expensive but if you do produce the audio book is there a big audience for it i know people can uh, listen to the book while jogging in their cars and things like that and that probably creates a whole nother audience but talk to me about what you feel how audio books and what is audio books you know should we pursue that market I would say absolutely yes, pursue that market if you want to get your material out to the widest audience. Audiobooks are one of the largest growing segments in the publishing world, uh, and I've had a good deal of success with it from a number of different angles. So the first one, I'm going to talk about patio books. Patio books, all the books are free. Most of them are read by the author, and they are podcast novels 
where the author wants to introduce you to their work at no cost to you, and right. you can then choose to check out their work or, or you know, buy their books or, or things along those lines. So I have three books up on patiobooks.com, the first trilogy. I recorded those in 2009 myself, and I am not the most skilled narrator in the world. Um, that's the largest feedback that I got was, hey, the first book starts a little slow, and your narration, yeah, not up to par. So for giving it away, it's absolutely fine. Uh, it's a four-and-a-half-star rated free podcast. When right. I took that same audio, removed all the chatter and the episodic nature of it rather than and, – and just made it a straight audio book and put that on audible.com, it was a two-and-a-half-star effort, uh, and I wasn't happy with that. So when people got to their paying their hard-earned money for it, the audio wasn't up to par. So I ended up teaming up with Chris Snellgrove, who reads the premium version of my books, uh, and those are for sale on Audible, and those are a three-and-a-half to four-star effort, and that I'm much more happy with. So when I first started working with Chris, I was paying him per finished hour. So I was paying him out of pocket for 10 hours of audio at his hourly rate, just multiply his rate out, and that was my cost for recording the audio book. And then I took 100% of the royalties. We use audio, um, ACX, which is the Audiobook Creation Exchange. It's owned by Amazon and Audible, and it's the self-publishing interface to audible.com. And so in that system, you have the ability to put your books out for audition and let anybody who is a voice artist on Audible submit an audition to you. Not only that, but they have the opportunity. You can put it up as a royalty share. Split the royalties 50-50 with the voice artist. And depending on your sales ranks on Amazon, probably determines how interested people will be in spending all the time to create those audiobooks. So if you have a book that's moving well on Amazon and you put it up on ACX and you put it out for audition with a royalty share, depending on how well your book is doing will determine how many people are interested. And if your book is doing well enough, Audible may put a $1,000 stipend on it out of their pocket to pay the voice artist to put in those hours to create it, and then you split the royalties between the voice artist and the author. Right. Right. Okay. That's very informative. Uh, thank you for that information. So in closing, uh, Brian, there's a young artist, a writer out there that's just starting, and he's just starting to write, and he's looking to sell some books, and he wants to basically have a bestseller, but he's not too sure about marketing. All he knows is that he has a book and he wants to get it out to the public. What would be the first piece of advice you would give him? The very first piece of advice I would give that writer is be ready for a struggle and don't give up. I could have given up so many times. People told me to give up. People who love me told me to give up. I was never going to make it as a writer. My writing wasn't good enough. You've got to believe in yourself and believe in your story and if you do that and keep at it, it took me 10 years to become a successful self-publisher. And there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of blood, sweat, and more than my share of tears along the way. But I never gave up, and that was the key. So keep at it. 
Talk to other people you see who are successful and ask them how they did it. Get out on Twitter. Get out on Wattpad, social networks where writers gather, and have people who you don't know read your work and give you feedback. Because right. a lot of times friends and family can't see past the fact that it's you. So go to somebody who, you know, if you write werewolf fantasy, find somebody who just loves werewolf fantasy and have them read it. And get some idea of what feedback they may have. And when it comes time for feedback, be aware that it will probably sting. It's probably going to hurt your feelings a little bit, but that's the nature of the business. It happens to all of us. Every time my editor sends me back a manuscript with all the red marks on it, I have to suck it up, be a big boy, and go in and take my lumps and know that it's just going to make the book better. Right. Exactly. Words to live by, Brian. Give out any contact information, how people can follow you, and any website information you'd like to give out. Absolutely. My website is brianrathbone.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-R-A-T-H-B-O-N-E.com. I'm also at Brian Rathbone on Twitter, and I'm brian.rathbone on Facebook. This has been the Funky Writers Show, and boy, did we have a funky write, a funky show today with a funky writer, boy. And you can follow me, Robert Batista, at at author R. Batista on Twitter. You can find my ebooks on Smashwords.com and my novels, including Street Angel, on Amazon.com. My guest has been a, once again the prolific author and so much more, Brian Rathbone. Thank you so much, Brian, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye now.